Hello and welcome back to another bonus episode of 80s All Over. I am your co-host, Scott Weinberg, and of course I am always joined by my wonderful co-host, Drew McWeeny. Uh, I, I am also here, yes. Drew, we are here to record an audio commentary for our listeners for The Fog, and the simplest way to sync everyone up is to have them pause the film on the Edgar Allan Poe quote that comes right before the title. Yep, and it's about 20-something seconds in. You'll see it. As soon as that quote comes up, just pause right yeah. there. And now, and, 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 uh, all right, so you've done that because you can pause the podcast while you're yep. doing it, yep. of course. So what we'll do is now we're going to count down, three, two, one, go, and then you hit play or unpause, whatever you whatever your uh, religion calls it, and, um, and then we go forward. So if you're looking at the Edgar Allan Poe quote. I am. Now, now we're going to count down three uh, – Two, one, unpause. Unpause. Okay. So, go, Drew. You, you, you were at the Edgar Allan Poe quote. Do you have anything insightful to add about Edgar Allan Poe? Not about Edgar Allan Poe. I think. Okay. Um, I think it's funny though how uh, just in one generation, the the whole generation of Carpenter and Dante and all those guys, Edgar Allan Poe is a huge touchstone to them. I don't think younger horror fans now are taught Poe. So I think there's a generation that kind of doesn't get him anymore. And I don't think they have the same reference point. Yeah, uh, it's just a great quote. And I hate to, to, to jump to a simple jump scare, but John Hausman closing that little stop, that little pocket watch. That mm -hmm. if you listen to that, if you listen to that in um, separately, it, it, it's ridiculously loud. <laughs> there's no way that pocket watch should be that loud. It's hilarious. I love the use of Hausman here because yeah. even though he's not in the rest, his voice is such a great voice for this kind of fireside ghost yep. story. Yep. And the idea that somebody got him to do just one, and it's a perfect one, is really lovely. Yeah. Uh, what I really like about this movie is how they were able to get Tom Welling and Maggie Grace, two of television's biggest stars, to combine. Uh, to I, get I think you might be watching a different version than I'm watching. Oh, is there an is there another no. version of No, I there's no other version of the fog. I, I was some, wondering why you wanted to do a 2005 horror film. Yeah, I think I think you've got something that couldn't be related to this film. Okay, there's no yeah. way. We will the, the, I I had to, I wrote that joke <laughs> and I I thought well, I would keep bring, coming back to it, but then I realized that in order to keep coming back to this joke, I had to rewatch that remake. And let me tell you something, Drew, I wasn't doing that. Yeah, uh, I don't like that is, uh, you know me, man, even with movies that I adore, I'm, I'm open and I know you are, I'm open to the idea of a remake. I, you know, you sure. say to me, a filmmaker is going to give another, sh give, give the fog another sh shake. My brain doesn't jump to, oh, how dare they? It's holy. It's sacred. My attitude is cool. Who's doing it? You know, like I'm down, make a remake. You know, you're not replacing a film that I love. You're just making a remake. And so uh, I'm not, I, I was a little skeptical and kind of down on the idea of the, the fog remake, but I walked in relatively open-minded, I think. And poof, I was, uh, I was working with Carpenter when that was in production. And, uh, I remember asking him when the title first came up, uh, Hey, so you're doing the fog. Uh, and he went, Oh no, no, I'm not doing it. 
Yeah. And I said, oh, are you involved? And he shook his head and I said, oh, is it going to be good? And he just shook his head. Yeah. Yeah. said about it the entire time. Let, let's just so. leave it with this. The Fog would have been a fine movie to remake if you didn't try and do it like super fast in a hurry in between three people's different uh, television production schedules because it really was just slapped together really poorly. So, you know, uh, I think the the original film, one of the things that is interesting about The Fog to me is how it's not a towering accomplishment in Carpenter's photography. It's a nice little movie that kind of works. And you can see the scenes where, like, there's two different films, the one they made. Yeah, we'll get to to those moments. Yeah. But I and both of those I'm okay with. I think he made both versions of it pretty well without it ever being great. Right, right and, now uh, we're looking at uh, him, him pulling his camera up over this wonderful cove. And, visually, uh, this movie yeah. rocks. That's yes. the thing is shot per shot, it's as good as anything he's ever done. His eye is awesome yeah, in this and film. You know what, Drew? I think it reads to a psychological thing about movie geeks, which is, you know, uh, once, you, once you've like savored most or all of Carpenter's films, and you'll, of course, agree or mostly agree with a lot of the thoughts on Halloween and The Thing, uh, and, and, you know, it's like, oh, the Halloween and Halloween and the thing are hit like his his titans, his big juggernauts. And then once you're if you're once you're a fan like we are, you start digging a little bit deeper. And the ones that are slightly less beloved, you start to build this love for. You know, here he is giving the performance that convinced him to never again play an actual role in one of his movies. Oh yeah, this is John Carpenter here. On John Carpenter's the the hippest janitor of all time, the hippest church janitor of all time. Look at him; he looks like he should be a roadie for the Doobie Brothers. Yeah, it's awesome, and it's <laughs> he's the church janitor in Monterey Bay. That's just uh, well, well, you know what? We I I did one thing. I I one thing in my notes that I wanted to do is my favorite thing here is ju- we're gonna run through real quick. John Hausman, '80s films that you would know John Hausman from: Holy Moses, My Bodyguard, and Ghost Story. That's John Hausman. Next nice. up, next up, the wonderful Hal Holbrook. I don't, I don't know exactly why Hal Holbrook never doesn't seem to be considered one of those A-list older gent character actors. You know, he's always he's always been kind of like that. That also ran in, in these. But Hal Holbrook is such a cool character actor. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it, I honestly don't know either. I I know so little about the context of how um, Hal Holbrook was received critically while he was working originally. Um, I think his performances have aged really well. I think yeah. he's a really good character actor who was memorable almost every time he showed up. Yeah, uh, 1980s films that you will recognize Hal Holbrook from include the wonderful Creep Show, the underrated The Star Chamber, and uh, let's say Wall Street. There we go. I like this. I like how simple a ghost story this is. There's an old thing. It's buried. There's a secret. Yep. As soon as the secret starts to bleed into the town, they have to figure out what to do about it. It's a very classically shaped ghost story. And I think a lot a lot of what Carpenter did the, at the beginning of his career was show that no matter what type of horror story he was telling, he had control over how he set a mood and an atmosphere and was exceptional at the details of these stories. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, there's something in the fog that to me feels like um, like like Carpenter. You know, he's fresh off the success of Halloween. This was his movie. This was his follow up to Halloween. And it's always says a lot about what a filmmaker chooses to do after they've become really successful. And 
for John Carpenter when after Halloween, his next project wasn't something you know bigger than life and, and gigantic and and uh, outside the realm of his uh, wheel, the wheelhouse or his comfort zone. It was hey, I want to make something that feels like a, a 1954 monster movie or a horror movie, and it, and it feels very quaint and old fashioned in that way. And Drew does it; it makes you almost kind of feel for the guy when after he made the film, he was told, "No, you need to gore it up. You need to gore it up." Well, that's the thing. I think I one of the things that I don't think these guys get credit for and that I think eventually we will understand when we put the whole generation in context is that guys like Joe Dante and John Carpenter and George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Brian De Palma, all these filmmakers, Martin Scorsese in a huge way, these filmmakers were the American equivalent of what Francois Truffaut was, which is people who absorbed movies and digested them like film critics do, and then their films are their criticism. They are their way of not only paying tribute to the genres and the things that they love, but also canonizing people. What Joe Dante did with Dick Miller, that's not an accident. He loved Dick Miller, thought he was one of the greatest character actors of all time, and then gradually, over the course of his adult career, found a way to make sure Dick Miller became the institution that Joe Dante believed he was. And Joe did that single-handedly. That is one of the things that Joe Dante's career accomplished. It gave Dick Miller a second career. And I think that is the thing that these guys, the casting in these movies, is not accidental. Janet Lee and Jamie uh, Lee Curtis being in this movie together is not just fun. It's significant to John Carpenter because it is him literally tying an earlier generation of horror to his generation of horror biologically and doing it on camera in a way that is fun and adds something to his movie. Yeah, and in case anybody out there was unaware, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis is, of course, the the daughter of the psycho superstar Janet Leigh. So the connection there, if you never made that connection, then then there you go. That's their mother and daughter. Uh, So there is a lot of old school horror DNA in this movie, in in a lot of the casting, in a lot of the, the look. And I remember very clearly as a kid being really impacted affected by this whole setup of all these just strange things happening throughout the town Uh, you know this stuff could have been shot at the very last minute as long long intro to a short movie uh but you know it it feels almost like a separate entity this whole this whole opening segment but i just love it because it sets an ominous tone without i i like how how similar some of this stuff is to like the spielberg early half of close encounters close mm. encounters really plays like a horror film when you're a kid yeah and to me i think of the fog i think it's the same thing it's stuff outside it's light it's smoke trying to get in it's like I, I don't think Spielberg was giving credit for how scary his shit was or how close it was to what Carpenter and these guys were doing. Right. And there's just a little, you know, it's just subtlety that, that you know, all the mildly creepy things are happening. And, you know, we're watching a horror movie. So as an audience, we're like, oh, this is the harbinger of scary things to come. But we try to watch it from that, like that shopkeeper's perspective, which is. I don't think anything scary is about to happening. I'm just sweeping up a store like I do every single night, you know, mm-hmm. and on this bit here with the uh, with the gas pouring out of the uh, of the pump. I thought, you know, just just the idea that there's just mischief, ghostly mischief going on, not necessarily terror. But at this point, it's just ghostly malfeasance, troublemakers. There's something I love about, especially in this film, that sort of putting on a show in a barn atmosphere where, you know, Larry Franco and Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, they were all doing each other's jobs to some 
some degree. Like Deborah Hill shot a lot of this early se- uh, second unit stuff, setting the mood around the town, and uh, she lit this stuff. And um, I love, I love how I, uh, all of the guys, like Tommy Lee Wallace and Rob Bottin and uh, some of the grips in the film, they're all pressed into service playing the pirates. So like you got guys who help build this thing who then end up as the ghosts in the movie. And it's and there is, there's that sense that everybody's doing a little bit of everything on film like this that you don't get when you get the later big productions. And I think it's one of the loveliest things about the plot. So you can sense this is them playing after having the success of uh, Halloween. This is, oh man, it's so fun, let's go do that again. And inviting all their buddies, and this time doing some yeah, and of course, this is the wonderfully beautiful uh, Adrienne Barbeau, uh, and uh, her 80s credits include Escape from New York, of course, uh, Cannonball Run, and Swamp Thing, and uh, she's a, she's a and, great... And me, Mrs. John Carpenter. And of course, Mrs. John Carpenter, yes, yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, all that info is kind of fleeting. She will always be the star of those movies. She was She was only temporarily the... Mrs. John Carpenter. I love their I love yeah. their overlapping career. I love the moments where John and Adrian Barbeau work together. And I also love the I think she had a great early 80s just in horror in general. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to get to 82 and creep show with her. Oh yeah, creep show in general is just yeah. But That's yeah, it's fun movie. it's fun to see an actor uh who just leaps right into horror and doesn't seem like, you know, she's a very uh, Adrian Barbeau is a very theatrical actor, so she she really uh sinks her teeth into horror and and sci-fi stuff. She's great. She's very sexy, I knew very, from, very scrappy. Cuz my mom watched Maud religiously in the 70s and like that was one of the the contexts of her uh before this. Um I thought Adrian Barbeau was terrific in all this early 80s stuff. We've got to do Creep Show, right? We'll do that as a commentary. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, and of Dude, course, this is, let us uh, let us introduce these fine actors. This is Tom Atkins. His <laughs> 80s, uh, his 80s re- uh, credits include Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, uh, let's say Night of the Creeps, right? And uh, a film we covered a couple weeks ago, Ninth, Ninth Configuration. Uh, awesome. He's kind of awesome as a tough guy. And he was a guy that you believed as just kind of a, a adult tough guy who was yeah. cool. Yeah, maniac cop. He's great in that. Yeah. And of course, sitting directly uh, to his right is Miss Jamie Lee Curtis, who okay. we've already covered in Prom Night and Terror Train. And we will soon cover in Halloween 2 and Road Games. And this is her else. at her full. This is it. This is the yeah. moment where she's right in the middle of it. And it was awesome to be Jamie Lee Curtis right then. Um, I think it's funny. I, I get this material between the two of them and the stuff in Rogue Games confused sometimes in my head because I've seen Rogue Games enough times that I love that movie and the rhythm between her as the hitchhiker and. Um, yeah, that got that bit always got me too. I mean, I you gotta I like jump scares where there's no li- literally no warning. That's yeah. a jump scare. Yeah. You know, a jump scare is not they're talking, then there's a pregnant silence, and then kaboom. There's ten minutes of windows where it's gonna be one of them. Yeah, it should just yeah. Uh, uh, if you're if you're really just interested in jump shocking or uh, shocking an audience, do it that way. Do it mid mid sentence. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but yeah, we should briefly touch upon. Uh, a person who, without whom this film would not exist, uh, and a producer slash screenwriter who died way too young, the lo- the wonderful Deborah Hill. Uh, it's safe to say that without Deborah Hill, the John Carpenter we know and love would not exist. Correct, Drew, you think? Oh, I, I think 100%. I think he, one of the things that happened 
to John was losing Deborah, I think redefined him as a filmmaker. And I, I don't think people give enough credit to those very special relationships that happen between directors and producers where over a period of time, they continue to work together and that producer becomes that director's bulldog, the person they can push things through and who is on their wavelength to such a degree that they are always united in what they're trying to make. And I, I think it's essential. I think for you to be that kind of director, you have to have that producer. And he had it. And Deborah Hill was such an amazing, vital part of these movies. And if you listen to the commentary between the two of them, uh, it's clear she was the greatest creative partner he'll ever have. Um, I think he has another great partner in Sandy Carpenter, his, his current producer wife, and, and they've done so much together. But, you know, Deborah... She was, she was responsible for as much of the personality of these things, and that's what we miss is is her and and what she brought to it. Yeah, she. Uh, uh, in addition to uh, several of John Carpenter's films, Deborah Hill also uh, produced the the Dead Zone and Clue, Adventures in Babysitting. Uh, in the '90s, she would do Fisher King. She uh, passed away of, of cancer in 2005, and the horror universe was devastated. Uh, her her uh, skill and talent lives on in these movies, and uh, I, I you know, uh, like, like Drew said, there is a fantastic audio commentary between John Carpenter and Deborah Hill on the uh, MGM and or Screen Factory uh, Blu-rays. So if you are a fan of this film, I I highly recommend you dig into that track and listen to John uh, Carpenter and Deborah Hill on the fog. Uh, yeah, and, and it's and you and you hear how so many of these ideas evolve between the two of them, and that's. That's what I think, you know, you, you is so indescribable in looking at a creative partnership is the end result has everybody in it. Yeah. And clearly Deborah Hill is as much a part of this as as he is, and there are ideas and visual signatures. I think the, the conversation itself that they've talked about where they were at Stonehenge and they were looking up the hill and there was mist on the ground and they were talking about how crazy an image it was. And that conversation led not only to Halloween when they were talking about the use of the stone, what the cult was and all that, but also led to the conversation where, where Carpenter pointed at the mist and said, what would it be like if there was something in that mist or in that fog? And yeah. that kind of led to this film. And it's the thing between the two of them is how it all came out to play. When you listen to them talk about, just for me, one of the most amazing things is visually how they even created the fog in this movie. Mm. Because you have no computers, you have no modern effects work. It's all dry ice and fans and verse photography and a mix of, of technique to create something that's pretty amazing and has a real personality. In yeah, that's one of the more interesting things about it. I wasn't able to put my finger on it back in the day, but it was that the 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 the, the fog almost seemed sentient in a way uh, that that yeah. it shot in such a way where it's pulsating and it's almost moving of its own accord. And nowadays, of course, you would do that in a computer program. You could have moving fog in eighteen seconds, but you know. Back in 1980, it was can you you know lay the fog down and hit the and hit the hit the fans so that yeah, it works the way you know like trial and error right right now what we just saw where it like goes down into the hold of the ship and you clearly see which way it's moving and then this where they go outside and they're suddenly in the middle of it all of this the fog is our character interacting with these guys it's really well done yeah and a lot of this here is stuff that was done uh, we'll cover this uh, as as most horror fans know uh, that. When when Carpenter turned this film in, he was uh, informed that you know, given the state of horror in you know in this era, eighty had already got started to get a little bit gorier. 
And apparently the fog was a bit too old fashioned for its own good. And so he was told to go back and do some reshoots to gore it up and make things a little more visceral and bloody. And we're about to see a few of those moments right here. Um, I like the I I wish this had been a PG. Like, I like the idea of the fog being a PG. Yeah, this fairly mild thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like you look at the film as a whole and it doesn't really speak to what we're looking at right now. Like, you know, Buck getting getting like stabbed like they they reek of inserts you know him yeah. shrieking and like that that's not the tone that the rest of the movie is or curved. even the visual style think of how carefully choreographed all the widescreen stuff has been so far and suddenly we're looking at a bunch of tv close-ups yeah and it's so that the violence you oh but i love i love this shot of just you all you can really see is the guy's face off the yeah. reflection of the water and then oh that's a great shot yeah. I, and also i gotta give credit Rob Bottin's hair, one of the reasons I think he's so iconic, not just because of the photos in Fangoria, but this, yeah. his appearance is the ghost and his shape is the ghost. Yeah. The minute you see a photo of Rob Bottin's face and his hair back then, you're like, that's the dude from The Fog. There's just a shape to it that is un- unmistakably him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to me, I think right there, that whole one-two with the thing going in the guy's eyes, I, I think that was an original kill. I don't think that was a reshoot. I could be wrong, but that to me seemed to be the tone he was going for, which is, oh, gross. It implied that he poked his eyes out with the knife, but there's no blood. They don't show an eyeball hitting the floor. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no. So uh, I think people forget that that the thing was really Carpenter's baptism in gore. Yeah. Um, before that, it, it seemed like something he was actively working against in his films. Yeah, these all these shots of Adrian <laughs> Barbeau with the uh, with the the spotlight going past her. All of this stuff could be so deadly dull if beautifully she shot. I love if, that. Set. Yes, exactly. It could. It, she is already an interesting character for, for through almost no writing at all. She's already an interesting character. Her her her. We've now established kind of that. Oh, she has an overlook of the whole the whole village, and she's going to be like the guardian or the or the heroine. And we're like as we're watching other characters get offed, we're watching you know the the. Uh, the early introductions of our hero character and her, um, I guess you would call it awkward kind of flirting with, uh, the, um, the weather guy character name, Dan O'Bannon, not by accident. So we had a little audio hiccup there. Sorry, sorry. You wouldn't notice it, but we did it. It was very, <laughs> very stressful. And uh, we I started talking- screaming at the top of my lungs and weeping. So, uh, I know said we, you we might put it. that I didn't in. think you could, uh, what we were talking about is the uh, the screen presence, the smoldering, overpowering sexiness of Miss Adrian, Miss Adrian Barbeau, who is a very good actor. I love but that also, John made uh, her smoke in the film because she wasn't. And John was like, trust me, on camera, it's better. Just smoke. I love this bit right here. We just pull in with Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis and they're laying in bed together. Drew, where were they in the last scene we saw them together? Uh, in a car. In a car. He picked her up for a hiccup. He was hitchhiking, and now smash cut to in bed. Let Tom Atkins, ladies and gentlemen, the magic. That's up. how. That's how it worked in 1980, baby. If you were <laughs> just driving through a small haunted town, and you picked up a hitchhiker, she would probably have sex with you within this 15 minutes. Uh, because this is a documentary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so yeah but what I like about this movie is and I don't want to spoil it too much but the novelization gets into it a little bit more the the movie almost makes it seem like the killings are almost random 
But it's clearer in the book that they're killing all the descendants of the family who did this terrible thing. I think and, the math adds up in the movie. I think yeah. by the time the movie ends, you get the idea that that's doing that. That's how it's working. One of the things I really like about this is I don't think I think there's a lot of horror novels that I've read that I that I think oh that'd make a really good movie, and then it almost never gets made as a film. And they're the big they're like the town ensemble novels where you meet all the characters in a town and there's some horror thing going on and we cut around the town to see how it affects everybody. And there's a whole genre of that stuff that's never really gotten adapted. This feels like one of those that somebody got right when they adapted it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that maybe the combination of it being kind of old school horror and then a little bit modern with the, you know, the, there is some nasty gore and, and some scary, you know, so I think it's that combination of old plus new that, appeals to horror fans so much. I mean, I'm sure Carpenter at the time was not elated that he was told to insert more gore into his movie, but in, in a way it, it kind of brings it to like, it, instead of it being completely old school, it has like a, a 15% modern uh, wrinkle to it. So I kind of like that it has a little bit of a nasty edge, but look how beautifully this is shot. Oh, I, love, I love that he walks away before Atkins gets there. That's such a great, that's the way that setup is so well. So yeah. Well Dean Cundy is a fantastic cinematographer who worked with John Carpenter many times. And you know what, Drew? Our, our listeners may, might not know that you also have a professional history with John Carpenter. So why don't you briefly explain uh, how, why, why and how you worked with John Carpenter? Uh, I met John in uh, the mid-'80s, and I'll talk more about that in the Starman episode when we get there. But uh, that was my first contact with him. And so when I ran into him again in the early-'90s when I moved to Los Angeles – there was already sort of a, oh, hey, you're that kid. And, oh, yeah, well, you're still freaking John Carpenter. Um, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, and then um, when Mick Garris put Masters of Horror together, uh, Scott and I submitted our script, and John pretty much didn't have anything that he was set to do. He just said, I'll read whatever you guys put together. Ours was the first one he read, and he went, that's it. I got it. And as soon as we started working with him, it made sense, like it very clicked very clearly clicked in as a, a project that was perfect uh, as a fit for him. Um, so we did the next one with him and uh, we've stayed in touch over the years. I really, I, I feel very lucky that I've gotten to go through that process where I wrote something that was supposed to be somewhat like his voice and then with him actually made it his voice, like, like right. built something that really was his as much as ours. Yeah. And so people are sure, are clear. Drew's co-writer at the time was Scott Swan. He did not yep. mean Scott Weinberg. Uh, uh, very talented Scott Swan. Yes. And uh, those episodes are called Cigarette Burns. That is the uh, pilot episode, if I'm not mistaken. And then the uh, – or not pilot, but first episode. And then uh, you also co-wrote with Scott an episode called Pro-Life. Yep. So there you uh, go. If, I, if, you, uh, if you are a fan of Drew McWeenie, as well you should be, uh, go dig up the Masters of Horror episode Cigarette Burns and – pro-life and then get on twitter and tell drew what a talented writer he is because i'm surprised he has written five movies by now he's got skills. i wish that we had had dean cundy like that's one of those things that you wish you could have put together simply for the experience of having those two guys collaborate again and i i regret that dean and carpenter don't work together still i think that they inspired the best in one another i also have uh you have um, i mean you worked with the man so you know him well i also have a carpenter anecdote that i will share but be before that let us cut to what do we think of this young actor this kid actor a kid actor can make or break uh well not make usually but a kid actor can definitely break a horror film and uh i like this kid 
Yeah, I think he's good. I, I think part of it is that they don't ask him to be any smarter than a real kid. Yeah. Um, he's not superhuman. He's not, he doesn't like save the day because he puts everything together in a way that he would. He's just a kid. And I think they put him in peril in a way that is genuinely terrifying in several places. And the kid, kid's very good. Yeah. Uh, his name is Ty Mitchell. And uh, he did not do much work after this. Uh, he's, uh, he, you can see him briefly in um, Halloween 2, uh, where I believe he's the boy who has his mouth cut open on the uh, apple. I think there's a very real relationship that he and his mom have here. The, the single mom thing, yeah. uh, the late 70s, early 80s single mom that Adrian Barbeau plays, great. And very archetypical. And I think American film had kind of made a place for this character at that moment. Yeah, and, and this here is all interesting. This is all just, you know, table setting. The, the idea that Atkins is looking for his buddy. And, you know, it's like they're all very, you know, it's – they. They're all tangentially kind of just milling around this this small village it, and putting putting the pieces together bit by bit. And so it, it's, you know, it's a, like you said at the at the opening, it's a very simple uh, ghost story. It's not trying to layer, uh, you know, plot subplot up, upon subplot. It's this is just a pretty cool procedural. Right. And there is a solution like there's something that's happening that can be explained and figured out. And these characters are putting the pieces together over the course of the thing. It's. I, I think there's a lot of horror that I've seen where the mistake is things are very random and you can make horrifying images. You can put sequences together that are tense and interesting, but the movies, sometimes you'll get there and you'll be like, all right, well, that didn't really even add up. It's just like a lot of cool horror things that you wanted in a film. Yeah. And, right. Uh, and uh, now we are introduced. Kind of a lost start. Just get the narrative right. Just get the basic building blocks correct in, in the way they're put together. Right. And, you know, you and I, uh, I we've both written our share uh, of, of teleplays and, and uh, spec screenplays and whatnot. And the key is not to just throw in random characters because you want to have some kill scenes. The key is if you want to have those kill scenes and those scary moments, build backward from there and create characters that have some bearing on the plot. Uh, and, you know, this is uh, I, I don't think Janet the, Lee. Yeah, I was going to say uh, the, the, now we're looking at uh, Janet Lee, who, of course, you will know from Psycho. Um I don't know. Let's see here. I'm going to use IMDb for this because what her 80s credits were are fairly scant. Uh, she was in episodes of Matt Houston, Fantasy Island, and The Love Boat. That's what that's what Janet uh, who's Lee that, did. Who's that with Janet Lee there? Uh, well, of course, most people will know Nancy Loomis. Who, <gasps> Nancy but, Loomis, be still my beating heart. Yes, she uh, uh, plays uh, the long-suffering assistant to this town, uh, this Nancy Loomis. I will take irritated Nancy Loomis over almost anything else from the 80s or the late 70s. She's great in Halloween. She's great here. Nancy Loomis should have been huge. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, uh, she's in Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, briefly in Halloween 2. Not really. I think she's really yeah. funny when she's long-suffering. When she's putting up with somebody, she's very, very yeah, funny. Yeah, she's somebody that, I mean, and she even has a small part in Halloween 3. Carpenter clearly liked Nancy Loomis as a character actor. I don't get why other directors didn't. Yeah, really unfortunately, uh, it doesn't. Yeah, she didn't seem to. Uh, that was pretty much it. Uh, but... She's left us with a handful of great uh, performances that horror, horror nerds will appreciate forever. Uh, she's just sarcastic, and she's great. I love her. I love the three flavors of the girls in the in Halloween. I think you yeah. know Jamie Lee Curtis is the rel you know the kind of <laughs> slightly dumpy or slightly dull or slightly plain, uh, and you know PJ Souls is the bubbly one, and Nancy is the uh, wise ass sarcastic one, and they're they're great together. Uh, 
And now, now this is, you know, just typical, uh, you know, this is just, oh, God. As far as production value goes, you don't get much better than the California coastline. Uh, that is a hell of a shot, and there's <laughs> nothing about it that's yeah. not just the California coastline. Yeah, John you know what, man? That. That's something that you really, like, maybe not a coastline, but one interesting thing is that when you're watching a movie nowadays, you're like, wow, that's really gorgeous what I'm looking at. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I wonder if that's been digitally, digitally touched. But like when you watch a movie from this and it's just a gorgeous shot in camera, you know, in your head, they got that in camera. Like, I think one of the reasons that I got so irritated by the conversation about horror in the early 80s, and we're, we're going to get into this on the show and we're, we may even end up doing a special episode about this. But I'm in rereading a bunch of the early Fangorias and in looking at the, the way they were almost in battle with mainstream critics like Gene Shalit and uh, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert and the way there was a reaction to what was happening in horror that was incredibly negative and scolding almost. Yeah, right. Um, it's a good point. It disappoints me because they 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 didn't discuss so much that was so good in these films and just the craftsmanship. If, forget whether or not you like horror movies. When you're looking at something like The Fog, you're looking at really, really good independent craftsmanship. I think John Carpenter and his crew were better at documenting what real America looked and felt like at a certain point than even Jonathan Demme, who was doing similar work at the same time. And I and I think they were after the same thing aesthetically. I think some of those filmmakers were chasing the same thing and trying to capture the same flavor. And I think Carpenter was amazing at it and didn't and because it was horror films, something like this doesn't get its credit for simply capturing that California community and the way small bay communities look and feel. It's as grounded in a time and place as something like Manchester by the sea this year with oh, all yeah. of its I Boston mean, locations. Yeah. It's so insular. You're, you're in, in Antonio Bay, the outside world for the, for the intent of this movie, nothing outside Antonio Bay exists. It might as well be the last village, might as last small town in the world, you know, and like, I've driven through 700 yeah. Antonio Bays as I've gone up and down the California coastline. It's completely real. That's what a California town feels like. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you you can't you know this stuff of them the, the good ladies going into the church, all this stuff, that's just good production. That's just good going out and finding a great location and shooting the hell out of it. You know what I mean? Like and Cundy's camera work, he was always so aware of the widescreen frame. And the thing that Carpenter did that I loved was his movies did not translate to television. When you looked at The Fog or Halloween on TV, you could see immediately well that's not what i saw in the theater that's not the way his films were. right now you're looking at like if you're li watching the movies. film yeah if you're watching the film along with us you're seeing the two women go from the frame right to into the center and and you know all this stuff if you had seen this on television you'd be looking at virtually a close-up of janet lee and maybe a few benches on either side of her like that's what that's what they used to do to television movies they used to pan and scan the hell out of it, which is they would zoom in and chop off the sides. And that's how they would turn a rectangle into a square. And as a kid, I didn't know that from a hole in the ground. But now as an adult, it makes me sick. <laughs> so here we have uh, Janet Lee and uh, Hal Holbrook and uh, Nancy Loomis. Oh, it's a great little jump scare by Hal Holbrook just lurching out of the darkness for no reason. Why would he do that, Drew? I know it's a great it's a great lighting trick, and Hal must have been sitting there for like ten minutes getting ready for that bit. It's just such a bad way to greet somebody, <laughs> and you're like, 
Hey, uh, hello, calling... how are you? Holy shit! Right, they're calling your name, yeah. fucker. Say yeah. hello. Yeah, you could. T- there's a million ways Let to greet you, us. If you Lurching came to out my of the house, darkness is not one. And I come. If I came to your house, Drew, and I'm going, Drew, Drew, <laughs> Drew, and then at the last minute you lurch out from behind your refrigerator. No, 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 no. Anyway. Oh. I'm sorry. Well, that's how I plan to greet you next time you come to the house. Uh, I'm not going to your house anymore. (laughs) Uh, I I have a a handful of different anecdotes about this movie, and I'm not sure which ones I should share first. Why don't don't you tell everybody, uh, while while I put my thoughts in order, Drew, share your, since this is one of the themes of our podcast, why don't uh, we both talk about what the film meant to us as adults, and I mean as kids, and then compare that to if it holds up or doesn't compared to obviously we like the movie, but let's, let's talk about it in our nostalgic glasses kind of thing. Well, it's, it's one of the few that I didn't see first run theatrical. I didn't see it until it played again. When it came out the summer, there was a drive-in double feature this uh, in the summer that the thing came out before the thing came out in our local drive-in, they had a double feature and it was this and it was Halloween. And I'd already seen Halloween and internalized it and, and, memorized the whole movie i had not seen the fog and seeing the fog at the drive-in for the first time was a great way to see it i i really enjoyed this as like an outdoor movie and especially because it was a second feature and it was really dark by that point it was pretty effective and um and i've got to say i think theatrically just speaking theatrically it's one of my favorite carpenter experiences just because it worked so well and you could hear screams from the cars around us and i thought it was a lot of fun to see like that and, yeah, uh, uh, I think a lot. Of, I, I feel bad. Uh, I'm not usually one of those uh, get off my lawn movie nerds like old head. But in a way, I, I kind of feel bad for the modern movie geeks. They have a lot of cooler things than we do nowadays for watching movies, but they don't have drive ins. And while it's not always the most practical way to watch a movie, it sure was fun, especially when you were a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And there were movies that just made more sense that way. Like I saw Close Encounters that way. I saw this that way. And those are fun outdoor movies. There's something about the edge of the frame that just starts to get a little lost in a movie like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, I I don't remember the f- for, per, all that well the first time I saw it. It must have been – it must have been I, – I think I snuck in with my friends and we saw like a part, like the ending or something because I, I was dying to see it. I, that's all I remember. But I know that I had already seen it. And the story was my parents were going out of town. Uh, for like with the friends for the for the weekend, like Atlantic City trip. So it was my parents and a couple of other couples were going out of town for a weekend. And my sister and I were staying at another friend's. And this woman had three kids and we were pretty friendly with their kids. And I made raised holy hell all week because I didn't want to go to their house on Saturday night because the fog was being screened on CBS or ABC. And I wasn't sure if the parents would let the kids watch it or if the kids had a TV available in their room or, you know, like maybe if their dad didn't want to watch it. And I was just – my parents knew that for me it was like a major situation of, oh, oh, this is a movie Scott really wants to see. So long story short, my parents ended up letting me bring the tight, the small – what we call the kitchen TV. Uh, and they let me bring that over to the kid's house and, and we stayed and, and, and we plugged the, t- the little kitchen TV upstairs and they all live in their kid's room. And I made them watch the fog and we stayed up all night because they were scared and the mother got really pissed at me. And when my mom picked us up the next day, she said, if Scott ever comes to stay again, uh, he can watch what we have in the house. He's not bringing movies over. <laughs> 
Well done, Scott. Yeah, because they were they apparently, you know, it's like if you give a kid who's never had sugar and you give him a pixie sticks, you know, that's bad news. And I guess it was the same thing. Like these kids were a bit sheltered when it came to movies and they saw the network television version of the fog. And that was enough. That was it. That we, you know, I mean, we were like probably 12, 13 years. Did, old. You, did you point out that the TV was in their house technically? So the movie was in their house. You didn't bring it over. That's not how television works. I uh, know. No, they were just, really, <laughs> I don't know. I guess maybe I like, like if, if your boys invited somebody over and they said, Hey, can I bring my own TV? Part like you as their dad would be like, yo, we got a TV kid. You don't need to bring a goddamn television over. What are you talking about? Right? Like that's how I, I guess the mom was not happy that way. So it was like, <laughs> but it, it wasn't that. I was trying to be considerate. I, I was I was fine with staying over there. I just really wanted to watch this movie. Um, so yeah, uh, that's that was my story about the fog. And I've probably seen the film twelve or fifteen times since then. And while I probably again would not rank it among Carpenter's maybe very best films. I would rank it in my very favorite John Carpenter films. And nostalgia has a lot to do with that. Really cheap jump scare coming up here while they're sitting in the hold of the ship. And uh, Jamie, you know, it's funny to watch Carpenter play with light. He does it with the lighthouse. He does it on the, in the, in the wheelhouse of the ship a couple of times. And uh, it's just these moments where the characters are sitting still and the light plays across them. And it's, it's just so the, funny. Watching yeah. some of the uh, watching some of the horror movies I've been watching over the last week for our May 1981 episode, I'm struck again by just how good John Carpenter and Dean Cundey are together, and how classically beautiful. Just the simple stuff like you're talking about him playing with light. Just the idea of having the rotating light that every now and then comes back across Tom Atkins' face mm-hmm. makes that scene so much more interesting. Makes what's happening between them visually interesting. Everything about the way this movie is shot is visually rich. I'm amazed at how often horror films, the attitude seems to be, well, it's just a horror movie. Fuck these people. Yeah. Like you really get the sense from a lot of the filmmakers who made crappy slasher films that they were cashing in on something and that their contempt is so naked for horror fans. Like it doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to look good. It doesn't have to be anything except a horror movie. Yeah. And a Carpenter always thought of his films as craft first. Yeah. Well, real filmmakers, whatever the genre, you know, treat their viewers with respect. And, you know, that's that's why we're uh, dedicating a 90 minute podcast to The Fog. And we're dedicated. We dedicated literally 45 seconds to uh, Eyes of a Stranger. Yeah. Yeah, Because, uh, you know, uh, it's not just, oh, uh, we pick a filmmaker and we admire them. And that's Carpenter. No, it's the other way around. We watch the films and we admire who deserves it. And Carpenter is way up there. This uh, right here coming up is my favorite moment in the entire film that doesn't have to do with horror. I absolutely love this moment of her listening to the promos and walking down this giant stairwell. Uh, It's just wonderful. I don't know why. It it just doesn't have much to do with anything. It's kind of setting the location and it's definitely giving you a little character development on her. But in another film, this would be cut. Totally, quote unquote, I'm being in air quotes, unnecessary. But I love look how, the, uh, look how beautiful that, that shot the, is. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. And the location is insane. I love the fact that this lighthouse that they found was they picked it for its visual location. Mm. And it turned out that it is the second, I think, foggiest spot in North America. Mm. Just naturally. It, it is. And that's not why they picked it. It just happened to and also be 
one of the foggiest spots in North America. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, you, you, the movie would be fine without all this long moment of her walking down these steps, but it sets up how isolated the lighthouse is for later on. Uh, you know, it just, I'm watching, as silly as it sounds, I'm watching that moment. I'm thinking, she have to walk down that flight of steps every goddamn day yeah, when she goes to every work. Every single day <laughs> right? when she goes to work. Like, That's just stuff like it. that. Exactly. It's just little, little tactile <laughs> moments like that. Uh, that, you know, the, the scene could start with right here. She enters the wheel. She enters the lighthouse, that whole bit with her outside, frankly, unnecessary, but it adds such nice, you know, visual touch and a, and a classy v, uh, veneer to the movie. Um, I think you're right though. I think it also does a really nice job of setting up just how alone she is and how if she wants to get out of there. Even before she can get to her car, there is a huge gauntlet. She has to run. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I do think that was the main point was to like give the audience, we have to show them at one point how isolated she is. Uh, and, you know, so he did it, but it didn't have to be a good four-minute sequence, and I just love it. I think it's, I love stuff that's in movies that isn't necessary. I love that when- a serious 70s do that Adrian Barbeau is rocking Yeah. Oh, oh, and to those who are unsure, um, the piece of wood is resting on a, co- a, a collection of what are called cassettes. Cassettes, cassettes, Drew, stop laughing. They're going to think I'm making this up. Uh, Cassettes used to, uh, you could either record your own music onto them or you could buy pre-recorded cassettes that played music. For example, you could get cassettes that that had music from R.E.M. or the cars or the doors. That's it, though. Just those three bands. Cassettes. (laughs) Man, I had so many. I loved cassettes. I'm not kidding. I loved them. I, I, they weren't the best audio quality, but you could carry a bunch with you. Man, when I moved to L.A., the back of our car had so many cassette tapes in it. I don't think you're saying it properly. Cassettes. Cassettes. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been thinking about my articulation. I was listening to a podcast about the Phantom Menace, if you can believe that. And they were making fun of the way uh, Natalie Portman says, committee. And I just couldn't stop laughing at that. <laughs> but we'll save that for 90. We'll just save that for 1999 all over. We're back to the fog. Drew, important question. Yes. Where would you forget nostalgia? Okay. Where would you rank the fog on the man's features? Uh, I, I, for me, it, it it's definitely second tier. And I, I think it's second tier because the film just kind of, even when the film kicks into a high gear with the threat, I still feel like it, it is a fairly small, fairly contained. I love that effect. I love yeah. the effect with the water coming out of the wood. Yeah, you could that see him slowing. They, there's, you, you could see him slowing down the, uh, slowing down the footage just a bit when it starts to get wet. There, it's such a simple. Uh, it's- yeah, it's crazy how much more effective every physical effect is in this movie than in the 2005 version where they had every trick they could possibly need. And yet this still works better because, you know, all of it's real. All of it had to be done somehow on a set so that they could shoot it. That was a real that was a note we got from Carpenter when we sh- uh, worked with him the first time. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um that was a note we got with him the very first time we worked with him was in our first draft of Cigarette Burns. There were a couple of scenes where we were really working to describe mood. And the first time we had a note session, which was terrifying because, you know, John Carpenter walks in and says, fellas, it's great. We're going to have to do something to every single page. And you just immediately have to start tearing your thing apart because he, he needs you to. But the question he kept asking us anytime we would describe mood or we would have something that was vague in the script was, yeah, that's great. What am I pointing my camera at? 
Right, and for right. Him, what's that is ninety nine percent of it is right. What's the focus? Yeah. yeah, his mood is. You can describe mood all day long, but what is the camera looking at? What is actually happening? And I think for him, he is so precise about if he's going to do a shot, it better be for something. It better communicate something. It better add something to the overall. I don't feel like there's any real fat on his movies. No, there aren't some. He does get a little bit indulgent here and there, but for the most part, no. He's. A, I think he would be considered a, a remarkably efficient director. I believe. Uh, and you know, uh, I always that I think are more efficient at what they do overall. I know that we disagree on this movie. I think Prince of Darkness is scarier than The Fog all the way through, and I think uh, they're similar. I think they are similar in the way they uh, they try to play, but I just think Prince of Darkness for me is far freakier and far more aggressive about landing the scares. Well, we'll have to save this for our Prince of Darkness commentary, but um, I, I, I like the uh, the what's the the decipherability of the fog. The fog is a very straightforward, simple story. I've tried to watch Prince of Darkness, and there are like three or four times during that movie where the psycho babble gets so thick you can just feel them just saying, "Oh, just just blah 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 blather." There's just there's stuff about Prince of Darkness I really admire, but none of the characters feel like real people, and and it just feels like a, a handful of uh, really cool scare scare moments barely cut together. And and this, uh, I, I I I like Prince of Darkness probably a little bit more than the last time we talked, but I just <laughs> I don't know, man. I I fluctuate on that movie, you know. But uh, that's the beauty of Carpenter and and his movies is that like. Uh, for you, See, it might like, be it, it might be in the mouth of madness that his his master underrated, or it might be Prince of Darkness. Uh, but you know, the thing is, like, I I like them all, but I I just something about Prince of Darkness has never been able to like connect with me on a personal level. See, I like the fact that that movie is physics students having metaphysical conversations about the nature of evil and things like that. And I like the science back. I like the science grounding of all the characters. I like the fact that they're there for that. To me, that psychobabble, that's what's fun about that movie is listening to them debate what they think is happening, even as it starts to happen to them. And there comes a certain point where I don't care how, how theoretical or hypothetical or highfalutin your theory is when somebody turns into cockroaches. Yeah. Um, it, it, None of that fucking matters. And I, I kind of like that all of that talk, there's a certain point where it doesn't matter what you're talking about because that dude turned into roaches. Shit's yeah, yeah, it just seems like a lot of the psycho babble is like filler. It's just like supposed to be there to imply that the film has more to say than it really does. But I kind of like the premise. It's a, it's a unique premise in the uh, history of horror. In Prince of Darkness, no one's going to say it's a knockoff of something else. Uh, so every you know, shot in this movie looks like there's a matte painting behind the actors, and yeah. none of it is. It's all just perfect location use. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and there's this is a bit more stuff that they added. Uh, uh, I, actually, you know what? I'm not 100 percent sure about this whole resurrecting guy. I don't know if this is something that was added. I used to have a. I used to. Uh, there was an article that listed most of the stuff that was shot later as the reshoots, uh, and. Uh, I don't know. I, I, something tells me this wasn't. This seems like it was part of the original cut, but it's not really fun to sit and speculate. Is it true? I think it's terrifically fun to speculate. In fact, well, facts just get in the way. I think that we should be more prepared than than pure speculation. That's just my professionalism speaking. I can't well, this, speak for this you. This one in particular, I feel like <laughs> this movie, if you want the behind-the-scenes details, I would emphasize listening oh, to yeah. Carpenter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we um, are – in no way are we a replacement for an actual audio commentary. There's tons there, of information out there about the fog. This is where there we're are doing some it. films we're going to do where that stuff isn't out there. And I think we're going to do a real service to 
bring some of these behind the story scene stories back to life for the first time. Um, and that'll be fun on those films. This one, what I love is simply it's, it's just watching how it plays with the tropes. And that's, that's the other thing about the fog is I think it is one of the most basic movies he ever made. Yeah. It's, I, it's really fundamental it's, in what kind of scares it's trying to, to get it also out has of. a lot of man wearing plaid. Oh yeah. Look at this. Two men in plaid. Having and, a very intense kind right, of Right, and they, they, the doctor takes him outside in the hallway to talk, and they leave the woman completely alone in there with the body. Why, why Please they stay ask, with the corpse. We'll be right back. Yeah, why wouldn't they ask her to step out in the hall, and they stay <laughs> in there with the corpse? What the hell is that? Please, I'd like you to stay here with the dead body. We'll be outside yeah. talking. Uh, and if it makes again, you uncomfortable, please don't come get us. Uh, this is another uh, it's a great shot here. I like that of the leg coming down and hitting the floor. Um, this this leads into what I said earlier is we occasionally get little s- snippets or hints of the backstory uh, of, of why the specific people are being uh, stalked and or harassed. And, you know, I don't know if all this pays off all that well. You know how he like scrapes the number into the floor like it feels like it's trying to piece all the can connect all the dots plot wise, but I don't know. It, it just, uh, a lot of this stuff just seems like Scooby-Doo in a way that, that, that blasphemy. No. And you know, the ghost story, like I said, I do think it's super basic and, and that is, it is the strength of the fog. It is the weakness of the fog is that it is for better or for worse, just a ghost story. Yeah, and what I one thing that's always kind of irked me, they're like madly in love already. He hasn't oh, yeah. even known this woman twenty four hours. <laughs> All right, already yeah. had sex with her, searching for his dead friend, investigating Hitch- it. Hitchhiking oh. in movies was really different. I just watched Sob last night, and hitchhiking in that movie again, yeah. not the way hitchhiking works now. Certainly not the way hitchhiking is portrayed now. Yeah, um, in this movie, hitchhiking is a perfectly valid life choice, and you might find the love of your life doing it. So, I, I, I guess maybe does that have something to do with the location? I'm not a California boy, but is it maybe considered in the in the early '80s? Was it considered uh, safer in, nor- in Northern California to hitchhike? Well, I think it was definitely it's it was more <laughs> a part of our culture. I think hitchhiking was one of those things in the uh, late '70s, early '80s. Definitely on film and on TV, hitchhiking was everywhere. Think of how many times you saw hitchhiking in movies and TV, and think of how often it's used now as plot device. And it's really not. Like, it's not something a writer would do anymore just because nobody hitchhikes. It's an insane thing to think to do. Um, another, uh, another, uh, this whole, that whole uh, suite, that whole pan shot kind of encompasses the whole town in a way yeah. of, like, you know, and I remember thinking as a kid, is this the smallest town I've ever seen? What, who do like seventeen people live here? <laughs> yeah, I think there are less people in this town than there are in Altman Sweet Haven. There are very few townspeople in this. Uh, <coughs> I also kind of like how they don't. I mean, part of me wishes they did, but most of me appreciates that Carpenter. If this was me, I'd be like, we left too many characters alive. We got to go back and kill some of these. And but that's not what this movie is. It's not a body count horror movie. It is a, you know, it is a thriller about a cursed, you know, undead. Think of how low stakes the political fight in this movie is. The uh, the campaign that Janet Lee is running. This is a very very small town. So the the stakes here, microscopic. 
whatever whatever happens in her election. Yeah, but that's kind of the fun. That's kind of the fun part of these movies is that you know we're so used to everything being mega high stakes, but you know what? To these characters, what's going on is definitely high stakes. Uh, yeah, and it just I think that that adds to the old fashioned quaint kind of charm of the movie is that it's not about eighty people and and a giant massacre. It's about you know six or seven characters, most of whom live, and and you know how they deal with a temporary but horrifying. Uh, a, a super if Carpenter had made this for a studio, there's no way Atkins is the lead in this movie. F no. And I mean Ever. F. No. Ever. Yeah. Not even F no. How about Gino? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, good point. But he did, you know, he probably went, hey, I can get you Jamie Lee Curtis. I'm hiring Tom Atkins. And they went, okay. Yeah, okay. I love it. I love the choice. It's one of the reasons that I like his movies is I like the way he casts leads. But there's no way you ever get this lead no. past the studio. Can we, uh, for just a few minutes, since we're not going to get to him for several episodes, can we just for a minute, Drew, talk about Night of the Creeps? Uh, sure. How, how awesome is Tom Atkins in Night of the Creeps? Uh, it's it it's one of those perfect mixes yep. of material in person where they hired him. He is exactly the right guy to play that movie, and he makes it awesome as a result. And uh, um, by all you probably could comment on this. By all accounts, Tom Atkins is. Just a ridiculously sweet guy. Just a mensch. Yeah, well, and again, I think part of that is because he's not cut from movie star cloth. And so the fact that he had the career he had must seem to him like this great gift. And he must really appreciate the fact that people enjoy those movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's that, you know, there's that just in order to be a a successful character actor, you know, you kind of have to have one or two ongoing like vibes God, I you know love it's, the fog rolling in yes here. it's some of the most beautiful shots in the whole movie uh and and i think that uh tom atkins you know would, i think he would generally be described as a character actor although of course he's played leads uh he's just that kind of character actor who's like the likable mechanic or the love the, the friendly dad he's just you know somebody or, or the tough detective and you yeah. like him within five minutes. That's what a character actor like him pulls is that you like him within five minutes. You know, well, uh, and there's a credible blue collar thing where whatever he gets cast playing, you believe he can do it. I'd also be uh, curious to know if they ever do a sequel to The Fog, if and when a black person ever moved into town. Look at these shots. This is the stuff that and it's funny. There's there's one of my favorite things about the commentary of Deborah Hill is I love that there are a couple of shots where she's like, I don't know. I don't know what we did there. Yep. And I think that's great that there's stuff that even she now could look at and and not be 100% sure what version of the fog that was. Was it yeah. dry ice? Was it something they blew in? There's a couple of shots where they just got lucky and it got foggy and nature helped. And I think that's that's one of the there kind of magical things about the movie is trying to figure out exactly what you're looking at in some of it. There's the only black man in Antonio Bay right there getting ready to leave yep. the weather station. <laughs> and then drive somewhere else for a Saturday night because uh, yeah well that's, at least we know he makes it so at least uh, Carpenter is not playing into that uh, cliche that was just getting started of a black character has to die first <laughs> yeah I, I, I got to assume not you know back when I first saw it not knowing anything about how films were made really and now I watch it and I'm like mm, for every Three seconds of fog in this movie. There was probably three hours of footage that was unusable. Oh, I guarantee there is somewhere there are sound recordings of Dean Cundy saying very bad words. Right, because like if you don't work. get that fog like rolling down the street the right way, you can't just reset and go. You gotta like 
that takes oh, you a have whole... to blow it out. You have to yeah. bring the fans in. You have to completely get this street clear again. Then you have to try and do it again. Yeah, it must have been a nightmare to shoot some of this stuff. But that's why I. That's one of the pleasures of the movie is looking at it and realizing again, somebody actually made it happen. Somebody figured out yeah. how to get this on film. Right, and if it sounds like we're being, we're, we're, we're character like that's. I, I can't believe there's scenes where fog acts in a movie yeah. like this. Yeah, they're trying to draw, and 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 the fact that it like here's a good example. There's a movie called The Day After Tomorrow, and the concept there's a couple of moments in that movie where the concept is they're running away from the temperature. Cold. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're running, running away, away from, from the cold, and, and just you know, barely. Like, right, and it's really cold, <laughs> really silly. And a, a movie like this re- kind of runs the same risk of run from the fog. Like if you don't nail it with the right tone and attitude, it's like the happening. Oh, run from the wind. It's just yeah. silly. It's, you know, and nothing. I mean, to its credit, there's not much in the fog that doesn't work. Like you might not think it's scary or you might not even think it's interesting, but none of it is like campy or 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 silly where it's meant to be serious. None of it. Uh, and I love Charles Cypher's cable knit sweater here. Love it. And this is great. Like I, I liked it. Carpenter doesn't do a lot of jump scares in this movie. A lot of this is he takes his time showing you something in the background. That's mm-hmm. awful. That somebody in the foreground doesn't know is there yet. There yep. are so many good shots of the ghosts just outside doors. Like that one earlier, we were talking about where it's the Sith that it's kind of banging against the door to knock with. Oh, we'll um, get to my, we'll get to this scene that gave me nightmares forever. And it does, you know, the scene and it doesn't have a drop of blood in it. Um, and I, I, you know, that was, that was the era where the movies that, that had the biggest impact on us rarely had blood in them. And I, it is so strange the way these guys got linked to being the godfathers of that movement, whether it's him, whether it's Carpenter or Toby Hooper, you know, the guys that came after them pushed it way further than they did. They ended up playing catch up later. Oh, well, you mean with the gore quotient? Yeah, with the gore yeah. stuff. Like, yep. I seriously, neither of them really uh, did it until after other people had broken those those walls down. Like, right, and it kind of makes you wonder, like, what would their films look like if Friday the Thirteenth and hadn't been. You know, if that if the uh, if the gore aspect hadn't been introduced in the early 80s and they were just kind of left to their own devices to direct horror thrillers, you know, we might have even gotten more great films from Carpenter and Clive Barker and Toby Hooper and Wes Craven and Joe Dante. But uh, it seems like the specter of the slasher film, which was then new, was cast over every horror film. And it it seems like every meeting in every in every uh, studio was. Yeah, this is not a bad script, but we need six extra kills and some gore. That that seemed to be the marching orders back then, and uh, I don't know if wow, that that's that insane yeah. blowout that Cundy does there, where yeah, that yeah, light yeah. pulses and it gets so bright that for a moment it almost like burns a hole in things. Yeah, the idea that the fog is glowing uh, is just it's sold so well uh, with a pulse. A, yeah, not just glowing, but there's a weird heartbeat in the fog. That's what's. Yeah, there's something, Drew, that we have not covered yet, and I really think that we're remiss. And as soon as I mention it, you'll say, thank God I brought it up. I am the best co-host ever because our listeners would kill us. If that's I weird. Did, I just typed that. I was, yeah. I, that's crazy. Okay. If we did not discuss the relative quality and, and placement of this film's score. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. It's a, it's I a, it's, love the music in this movie. You go, go ahead. 
when we were talking, I think a little earlier today, as we were getting set up, we were talking a little bit about John Carpenter's musician and uh, you went and saw him live. Yes. On the tour. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I wanted to make sure you did. Cause I, yeah. I thought you did. He yeah, played it. Yeah. He, he came to Philly and it was great. I took, uh, I took Toshi to it. And the biggest problem I had with that was the stuff he hasn't seen yet. I told him, don't look at the screen. I don't want you to see the, the images beforehand for the thing. I don't want you to see. And Prince of Darkness, I just don't want you to see because it'll really mess you up. So um, for the most part, he only looked at the screen for movies he had seen already. So he looked at the screen for Big Trouble in Little China. He looked at the screen for Escape from New York. He looked at the screen for Halloween. Um, he was fine with those. But then he looked at the screen for the fog. And he told me afterward, oh, that was a big mistake because um, I can't sleep now. And just the highlights reel for the fog, just the images that he saw there got really far inside him. And he has talked about them repeatedly since then. I almost don't want to show him the movie yet because I feel like a couple of years raised these weird nightmarish out of context images will make this far more effective. And I think it will live bigger in his imagination than it will if he watches the movie right now. Well, oh, uh, I thought you were le- wrapping around to my question about the score. Well, the score, the sc- and one of the no, things good, that I love about no, it's a good, it's a good story though. But I was waiting for you to dump that. I'm like, all right, what is that? But no, but, but that all started because having seen the score live, um, yeah, it yeah, stands yeah. out as an incredibly effective piece of music, and it is because, like that light that Cundy has in it, there is this pulse that Carpenter gives the fog and this mood that he gives the fog, and I think it does have its own voice in the film because of Carpenter's score. So the fog never is silent and the fog has kind of a feel when it arrives. You know what I do dig? And and if you were going to like make fun of this movie for some silly moments, this is something that I suppose it's not just that the fog uh, hides within it, a a bunch of dead lepers uh, back from the grave. The fog can also uh, impact power lines and put and and disable a power station. Just Just the fog itself. So, uh, you know, like, okay, that seems a little bit strained, but I, I'm, I'm so far I'm, I'm in love with the movie. So, all right, I'll accept that. I don't care. Like your evil fog can, can put out the electricity. Sure. Why not? I think one of the great things about her role in this film is there is something really spooky about being above a situation and yeah, kind of yeah. watching it roll in and hit oh, people. Oh, that's why I and you're love trying to call them. Yeah, she's yelling out onto the radio, stop at my house and get save my kid. It's like, what an interesting, creepy, one-way communication that is, you know? Like, yeah. in a way, she's complete, in a way, she's relatively safe compared to everybody else. But on the other hand, she she can't run to town to rescue her kid. She's completely isolated. Uh, yeah, it is an interesting kind of God's eye view. But yeah, back to what we were talking about on the score is, it's one of Carpenter's most you know, like memorable or, or impactful talents is that for his movies, I mean, his score for Halloween, his score for Escape from New York and uh, Big Trouble, uh, he didn't do the score for The Thing, but I guarantee you uh, everything that Ennio Morricone got, you know, approved through him and that score is amazing. So even if he didn't record that or compose that, he still was, uh, you know, smart enough to use it. Um, uh, I, I still, to this day, on the whole, I think the fog might be my favorite Carpenter score. It really, really? might. Like I could listen to it while I'm writing and just get into it. Absolutely. 
Um, I mean, the how you know what bugs me is when people think of uh, like horror scores. When people think of Halloween, they think do 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 do. But you know what? Every note in that score is great. Every sing there's not a ba- every every moment of that score is beautiful. Just the girls talking as they walk down the street and all the stuff in the house. This that entire score is wonderful, and that same goes for the fog. Every the entire score is like fifty minutes, and it's wonderful. It's so much fun. Well, I think uh, and I think the thing he did so well and is he had very memorable themes that were tied directly to the appearance of whatever it is that you're afraid of in these movies. So when certain themes begin, Michael Myers is somewhere. Yeah. When certain themes begin, the fog is somewhere. And I think he's great at, again, he's not about jump scares as much as he is about uh, letting the dread build yeah, and really yeah. milking it. And when the fog starts to surround the house, he takes his time with it surrounding the house and yeah. the score is to let you know that it's coming. I, I like that. I like the dread. I like yeah. how long he can twist the knife in an audience. Yep, and this, of course, is the sequence that really got me when I was a kid. Uh, this old lady, God bless her, she uh, reminds me a little bit of my late grandmother, who was my biggest advocate when it came to movies. My grandmother used to record movies off HBO for me. Uh, she'd hit record at like 11 o'clock at night and just let it run all night. And uh, That's so great. Yeah, she was the best. So she was the great. best. And uh, so, like, this to, – to, I was used to seeing horror movies in which, like, young people or bad people died. You know, and this is like a sweet old lady and your brain is like, why would you No, she'll be okay. And the fact that Carpenter, he kind of does it in a classy boom, right? No gore, no, no, nothing horrible. Just, just a couple of sound effects and she's gone. But yeah, God, that scared me, man. Well, then the last shot of just them leaning back into the fog to get her and you Mm -hmm. don't see what happened. Terrific. Yeah. Um, far, far more effective than uh, if they had gone hardcore. I thought something, uh, some of the films I've been watching over the last week, looking at the gore that they did choose to do, so much of it feels so juvenile. Uh, and, it, and there's this unnecessary quality to a lot of it where you, get, you add nothing to a scene. You're certainly not making it any better or more impactful. Um, oh, Carpenter's- now you're starting to sound like Gene Siskel, man. <laughs> no, but I but I love the gore in the movies that the the movies that we remember. Oh no, yeah, I absolutely agree. It's beautiful. Uh, like, a lot of people think that like horror fans are bloodthirsty, and if it's not R rated R and super gory, they're not interested. No, I want what fits the tone of the movie. If I'm watching a Peter Jackson film and it's knee deep in gore and I'm enjoying it, that's what I want. If I'm watching The Fog and it has literally two drops of blood in the whole movie, that's fine. It's a lot of fun. Horror yeah. fans are not bloodthirsty gore mongers. They like maybe that's sometimes that's what you're in the mood for. But a real horror fan will watch, you know, just about any kind of horror movie and give it a shot. It doesn't have to be nasty. Uh, Drew, straight up, if this exact 89 minute film came out today without a change, what would it be rated? PG-13. Without a doubt, this film yeah. we're watching right now would be PG-13. PG-13, without a easily. Doubt. Easily. Like you, yeah. I don't even know if it has enough language that you'd have to cut. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, I, uh, I, I do love creative gore as much as the next guy. And when, when we cover uh, the thing and American wow. Werewolf and everything, we will – Drew and I will revel in the beauty of, of – of, Yeah, of and well, last time we talked well about The Howling. Gore. The Howling yeah. is a movie where I love every single makeup gag. I love every bit of wet in that movie because – Man, Dante gets it right, and he knows how he's do- how he's using it in that film. When Eddie Quist is digging a finger into his own head, 
man, is that upsetting. And I'm down for that because <laughs> everything about that is part of the scene. Right. And the payoff, like here, is just the long suspense of will they get away? And they all That's do. Great. Yeah. You know, it's just a simple. And there's the shot of them pulling away, backing away from the fog. Uh, you know, I, I, part of me wishes that they had the technology to go a little bigger scale back then, you know, to, to make it, you know, one extra sequence of like the townsfolk all being pulled down by the fog. And you, you got to think that maybe Deborah Hill and John Carpenter had some aspirations of hmm, what else can we do? Is there any way we can make this larger scale or whatever? I don't know. But I, I like that it's all very um, insular. And that's not the word I'm looking for. It's all very it feels uh, like they spent every dollar they had, though. Like yeah. it, to me, this is a movie that that clearly you see that they had a little more money than Halloween. They probably had a little more time than Halloween. It looks like they had a bigger cast than Halloween, but not so much so that it's a different prospect altogether. So it still looks like they're pushing right up against the edge of their resources. Like, this is as much as we could do. And I do. I like that feeling in a lot of the, the indie horror that I really love is that sense of they threw everything at it. Everything they had, and they, they left nothing undone or nothing untried. Yeah, this is uh, – here's um, – I mean, for, for lack of a better term, this would be uh, Adrian Barbeau's kind of um, Oscar moment for this movie. <laughs> and there's a little there's a little trickery there. Like that, that one shot is clearly like a plate, uh, but most of the shots are completely um, believable. Uh, well, even that, that's used so well and deployed so carefully. Like they don't overdo that. And I think that the tendency would be, okay, well, this works and we know we can do it. So let's do this 50 times to make sure you see it. Yeah. Um, and for those who would like prefer some context, uh, Halloween was uh, in 1978 ended up being the most profitable indie film of all time for a long period of time. And that film made about 47 million. To give you an idea, uh, The Fog, a couple two years later, made just under 22 million. I don't have any uh, information on if if and how it played overseas, um, but 21 million in 1981, probably not you know not a, not a bomb bomb. You know this movie probably turned a profit, but when you're come, come off something that you know did 47 million uh, North America and and probably double that overseas, um, you know. You expect the next film to do better than 22 million. Well, so, and think about the message that sent also, because the message it sends is people don't want ghost stories. People want dudes with knives. Yeah, that's Car what they want. If Carpenter had started making horror movies 10 minutes earlier, uh, 10 years earlier, uh, he, I think, he, I mean, he, the man had an amazing, has had an amazing career, but I think his career would have been even better if he had started in the late 60s and not the late 70s, uh, because through no fault of his own, uh, horror became obsessed with, uh, you know, 90, 90% obsessed with viscera and gore in the 80s. And uh, guys like Carpenter were probably like, yeah, I'm okay with some gore, but that's not really what I'm down with. And they're like, well, that's what the market wants. So if we're going to well, give you I, money I to make a, was... make a horror movie, you're going to use some of that money to make it bloody. I, I really I, believe you. Yeah. I also think there was, there was a weird thing that happened where the studios desperately tried to absorb these guys. Like they wanted... Car Carpenter, they wanted Dante, and they wanted Cronenberg very quickly to come make studio movies, and then the moment they did, it didn't work. Like, they, the the relationship between the studios and these guys, these guys were independent. These guys had their own way of doing things, and I think it was never an easy fit, and that made for a very hard decade for all three of them in different ways. 
Well, um, the sucky thing about it is, like, it, it even happens today. You have like good, good indie filmmakers who make movies on their own and make some good films, and then Hollywood grabs hold of them and says, "What we want is we want to, we want to uh, exploit the films that you made before, and and at the same time." compel you to make something that's not as good as what you used to make. You know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah, uh, it just seems like that uh, of all the genres, horror is the, the, the quickest to be co-opted or homogenized or, um, you know. See, that's a terrific shot. That's a real yeah. physical shot that is. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's the, it's the mix of them. And to me, he, he knows exactly when to sell it with a real shot where you can clearly see it's a thick, See, Drew, do you think substantial maybe, fog? Do you think maybe that part of the reason this film didn't take off is because by this point we were used to oh love this shot of her eyes. Oh, she looks over the hill and there it comes. Oh, it's beautiful. Um Yeah, uh do, do you do you, terrific. Absolutely terrific. Right, and she's really selling it. They're like, all right, now you're looking at the fog moving from left to right, and she sells it. She ain't looking at no fog. <laughs> underrated actor she should have she was always kind of a, a b-movie actor and tv actor but adrian barbeau has like a real raw kind of i don't i don't mean like in a sexy way I, I, although that of course but i mean like she's just like a a natural there doesn't seem to be any artifice or or bullshit with uh with her she's just natural i can see why she and carpenter were an interesting uh combination because that is an element certainly in him as a human being. And I, I've got to imagine the two of them in a room, there is no bullshit allowed 100%. So. Yeah, so, yeah. So like what I was getting to in a, bit, a minute ago, and I kind of lost track because I'm watching a good movie is that I think by this point, like when you have a horror audience and they're, you're asking them to watch like a siege, these are people who've already seen like Halloween and assault on precinct 13 and dawn of the dead. And they, they don't want a siege that suspense and, and pays off with 90% of the characters living in this era of horror. People wanted a siege that ended with, you know, a lot of carnage. And in a way, this is kind of like in, in kind of an upbeat horror movie for lack of a better, I mean, it's kind of a light horror movie in a weird way. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I do. I do think it is. It's certainly not apocalyptic in the way a lot of horror ended up feeling. Where, um, man, you talk bleak. Uh, oh. Prince of Darkness is nothing but bleak, and um, it's a tough movie to take. As a result, is there is no light in the second half of that movie at all. There's nothing that kind of alleviates the unrelenting. Uh, things just keep getting bigger and shittier, and the world is falling off the edge of something. Drew, uh, and I, in this film, it is fairly small. You're right. Okay, so yeah, uh, Adrian Barbeau, her child has been saved. The wonder of the be like, I like that the biggest suspense moment of the film is, you know, this stranger breaking into her house and grabbing her child. I would never go. That would never fly in today's world to go break into my house and collect my child. Um, but sure, I really feel that we didn't really uh, give Tom Welling the credit he deserves for his work in this movie. Tom well, Welling, look, Tom Welling's Mag fine, but really Mag Maggie Grace holds the whole thing together. It's the Maggie yeah. Grace glue. Yeah. Uh, I can't. Drew, who did she play? I forget who played the uh, Adrian Barbeau part. Was there a name? I forget how director. Selma Blair. Selma Blair plays her. 
Yep. That is that is not a that is not a fair trade. No, but at least Selma Blair has a, some personality. The other the two leads are just well. If you've seen The Fog 2005 and you've never seen The Fog 1980, here's what I'd like you to do: hit stop on your podcast and insert your phone all the way up your ass. Well, I'm I'm curious what they're watching as they're listening to this. If they've gotten this far and they still haven't seen the night. Well, you know, we did try. I, I know uh, we didn't mention it, but we did try to make this commentary like work for people who are watching the film and as well, people who are not watching the film. So, yes. you know, we weren't we we're trying to not be so completely scene specific. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, thanks like for listening. Holbrook exiting stage left here. Uh, yeah, very, very <laughs> casually in the middle of everything else that's happening. Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, I love the idea that he's going to sacrifice himself. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a class, it's a cool moment. Uh, and, and the when he like picks up the, the cross and kind of shuffles forward. Everything's undersold. Everything. Yeah, it's a real vulnerability a this movie. Yeah. to, the, to Hol- Holbrook that you like, you empathize. You're like, oh God, he now he knows what's going on and he's going to do the right thing. And it's, you know, he doesn't deserve what happens to him. I think it's also it's for a guy like Holbrook who is probably coasted. This character, not Holbrook himself, but the character's coasted. He's never really been tested. He's never really been pushed. It's pretty easy being a priest in a tiny Monterey town. I would guess that that is not a high stress gig. And this moment is a moment where Holbrook really, for the first time, tests himself and and pushes himself and does something that is above and beyond and it's kind of a lovely character beat and he sells it right there's nothing in this movie that's ever overplayed or over dramatic carpenter never hard sells you in this film yeah no uh he it it, it almost feels like i i honestly believe that there was like a point where he was doing an old-fashioned ghost story almost as if in response to like the people who are asking him to do another halloween and then when he was asked or uh, or commanded to make it gorier, I can't imagine what kind of like a betrayal that must have felt like, which is, oh, you know, I was trying to make a gothic horror film in the in the early stages of this this gore parade that you're trying to get me into. And like I got to make the gothic ghost story I wanted. Oh, but then at the last minute you made me put in some gore bits and they're still, you know, relatively creative and and and, and interesting gory bits. But, you know, you, you might wonder, m- might we like the film even more without those moments, you know? Look at how personal the ending of this is. It just gets down to this priest, this ghost. It's so personal. Yeah. Uh, and it uh, kind of goes to the whole uh, idea. And again, it, it, it's not as much as we love the premise. It's not a bunch of ghosts attacking a town willy nilly. There is a method right. to their uh, madness. There is a logical uh, uh, through line on why they're doing what they're doing. And uh you know, I think that's that in a way that's really interesting and, and restrained. And in another way, I think that kind of thing kind of hurts the movie because you're kind of telling the audience, oh, there's only going to be X amount of scary bits per se. Um, but the, all the bit of her, everything with her on the fire, on the, on the top of the lighthouse, you know, the, the sickle just missing her leg and her climbing up on top. All of that is so great. It's so much fun uh, because we, we like her. We like Adrian Barbo's character. Literally, that's all it takes. Well, that's very primal. Like, I, I, there's no place else to go. She's a, she's climbed the only place she can climb. There's nothing else to do. Yeah. 
And uh, we, we hope that if you have made it this far into the commentary, that you will check back and listen to our other bonuses. We have so far, we have interviews with uh, wonderful Nancy Allen and the lovely Leah Thompson. And we have several uh, more interviews coming up. We have more podcasts coming up. Uh, I believe, don't don't hold us to this, but our next podcast will probably be Robert Altman's Popeye from 1980. Uh, that's I'm very excited. I think we're going to do a pretty terrific commentary track for that. And considering how little behind-the-scenes material there is on the DVD that exists and how Paramount and Disney seem to have no interest in going and doing a special edition of it, I'm hoping we can fill a gap there because I, I think there's a lot about that movie that is remarkable and a lot about the production of it that is incredible. That there are stories about that thing that I really I can't wait to share. So Drew actually went on eBay and bought a paperback about the the uh, behind the scenes of the production. That's that's the kind of research we do for you at eighties all over. It's going to be good. It's going to be a lot of fun. And um, I think that in general, as we move forward with commentaries, I'd like to do a mix of movies where it's simply we love the movie and we want to spend that time watching it with you and talking with you. And movies where I feel like we can make a real contribution and do something that is missing right now because a movie is underrated or undervalued or has not been earmarked for that kind of special attention that a lot of, you know, that is all the behind the scenes bells and whistles. Yeah, I might not. uh, Drew and I, uh, we gave ourselves kind of a a rule of thumb that we're only going to do commentaries for films we've already covered on the show. Uh, So. Uh, our next one will probably be Popeye. Uh, I think it might not be a bad idea, Drew, for us to consider doing a commentary for used cars, considering how much feedback we've gotten on that film. We have Dude, gotten anytime. We have anytime gotten time with tons. It is every single tweet that I get about used cars makes my heart a little, a little bit larger. Makes me so happy that we've turned on 10, 12, 25 people onto uh, lots of movies. But used cars is particularly uh, fun because we love it so much. Then the incredible shrinking. No, I'm kidding. And the incredible no. and eyes of a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that commentary mainly me. Uh, Jan, Mike, we're going to have Jan Michael Vincent in to do a commentary of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's going to be reaching out to the podcast. Oh, um, one of our listeners. I thought this was pretty great, Scott. One of our listeners went to an event where Andrew McCarthy was uh, signing a book. And mentioned the podcast to him and mentioned some of the interviews to him and uh, told him to go look for the podcast. So now we have to follow up and reach out to Andrew. McCarthy. Oh, hell yeah. I also reached out to Matthew Modine uh, and I would like to, if we can, r- wrangle him in. We have some pretty cool people lined up. But, of course, these are you know busy people with lives and families and work. So it's not just as simple as, uh, hey, Nancy Allen, let's do an interview. And just there it is. It takes some some scheduling, but we love it. And we hope to have like a big body of work. Uh, by the time this whole podcast is through, uh, well, we really are- appreciate you guys being Patreon supporters. And Thank what you. we want is for the the Patreon bonuses to serve as a way to fill out that conversation that we have on the actual podcast. Um, you guys have been amazing, and the feedback that we get on Twitter, and the feedback that we get in email, and the feedback that we get on the site. You guys have been really, really lovely. Yeah, and it's you're clear listening, that you've engaged. If you're listening to our voices right now, you are a Patreon. Uh, supporter you are a subscriber and therefore we owe you thanks twice not only for just listening and supporting the show but for being a subscriber and actually support financially supporting the show we love every single listener in the world but you guys who uh, who have subscribed i think we have like two percent more love two 1.5 let's say 1.5 uh 1.5 percent more love because you give us money 
And that's just the way the world works. Damn it. <laughs> but no, to every single listener out there, even if you're bootlegging this thing, you dirty bastard, we love you. Thank you for listening to 80s all over. And uh, Al Holbrook walks out and is like, shit, that was crazy. Okay, now here's the thing. Uh, th- the naming of the characters, Dan O'Bannon and Nick Castle and Tommy Wallace, it's fine in this. That got so out of hand. Oh, and God. what really started to bother me is when people would do it in tribute to these guys doing it. And then it would be, and then his, there's a, and then Carpenter is a name. And yeah. then um, another guy's name is King. Yeah. Here's, like the, here's some advice. King. I horror, get it. If you're writing a horror novel or a screenplay and your instinct is to use Hooper, Carpenter, King, God bless you, man. It's a great idea. It's such an honorable, uh, like to, to, to honor your heroes. It's such a good idea. Still, don't do it. It's been done a thousand times. You know how you can honor John Carpenter? Make a good horror film. <laughs> yes. Um, it truly is. It, it might be one of my biggest pet peeves in movies at this point. And I was looking at these credits and I realized, oh, yeah, well, that's because these guys did it first. And then everybody started doing it as well so yeah we're if done you have any feedback it's on our done. first commentary let us know right drew we we could take it if you have first compliments um, or polite criticisms or advice going forward drew and i have both done audio commentaries before but not so much on this show and so just we realize wanna, we're not trying on this one we were not trying to supplant the truly excellent technical commentaries no. already available we are never trying to supplant the commentaries or the articles or the insights of the filmmaker. We are film critics and fans who are trying to supplement or complement the uh, output of these filmmakers. Uh, I had a great time watching this. It's been a while. It was a nice excuse to put it on again. Uh, yes. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Things just keep getting bigger and shittier, and the world is falling off the edge of something. Drew, uh, I, in this film, it is fairly small. You're right. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, pause. Sorry, you guys are going to kill me. I have to go to the bathroom so bad. It's I'm holding it in, and I feel like I'm going to die. Okay. Sorry. I got it. Yep. I'll be back in a minute. No worries. So... So what happens when he comes back and pushes play and it doesn't work? (laughs) 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 There's only like there's only like fifteen minutes left in the movie, right? Yeah, it's real close. Yeah. Thirteen minutes. Thirteen minutes, okay. This this is almost as tense as the fog. <laughs> what's scarier dun, the first dun, time you watch this movie dun, or what's gonna dun, happen when he hits dun, the pause button dun 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 oh jesus <laughs> you know, there's nothing more effective than a horror movie at 9 30 on a sunday morning <laughs> <laughs> on a 12-inch screen in broad daylight. Yeah. That's how horror was meant to be it's seen. Like, it's like getting lost in it, really. I'm back. Hello? No, okay. You know, Scott, as I, as I was just saying to Bobby, 
there's really nothing more effective than a horror movie at 9.30 on a Sunday morning. And a, oh. It's really magical. <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, my, like while you're talking, my stomach turns over and I'm like, oh, I got to do my morning poop. And I'm like, oh, I can wait 10 minutes. And then it's just going harder and harder. And I'm like, no, I can wait. I can wait. I'm going to kill go. my mic. Yeah, I'm going to kill yeah, my mic and you guys I'm are good. Whatever. 1709. So I'm all right. Well, Bobby, uh, I, I want Bobby. I want to I want us to include Bobby on this. <laughs> nah. No. <laughs> Why not? Nope. Just 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 finish this one. Just finish this commentary first. Wait, wait, I can't throw it to you? No. I can't say let's get a uh, uh, peanut gallery from Bobby Robert? It's let's let's finish this commentary. Alright. <laughs> okay. Well, I just All was right. sitting there on the toilet thinking I'd like to throw to Bobby. It's well. <laughs> I, I don't know how I'm supposed to fucking take that. Thank you. Yeah, I've said it before. All right, all right. I was all pushing right, human waste out of so my gonna... open butthole, and I thought of you. <laughs> all right, all right. So I'm gonna hit play, and all then right. you hit play. <laughs>